and he's a member of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council. He's practiced insight meditation for over 25 years and has been mentored as a teacher by John Travis, Sylvia Bornstein, and Gil Fronstahl. He writes and teaches classes and retreats on meditation, socially engaged Buddhism, and transpersonal studies, and directs a two-year interfaith program in socially engaged spirituality for Saybrook Graduate School. He's currently completing a book on connecting individual and social transformation. Well, thank you so much, uh, Hilda. And I'm pleased to be here again and to see um, familiar faces and uh, many uh, new faces as well. And see, we go till about uh, 11 or so. Okay. 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 Till about 10:45. Okay. So we should uh, break break at about 10:45. Good. So uh, perhaps it's a coincidence. We didn't plan this, but I wanted to talk this morning about equanimity, so it will fit right into the um, discussion later in the week. And. What I'll plan to do is to talk for uh, not more than 30 minutes and leave some time for us to talk together. Um, Equanimity is the translation of upekka from the Pali language of the Buddha, and it points to a very uh, powerful and profound state of being balanced and able to be with uh, all experiences without getting knocked around so much. Um, It points to qualities of wisdom and compassion and joy as well. And it's a very uh, deep state in the Buddhist teachings. Some of you know that in the teachings, there is often an organization by, by lists. It's was done, I think, primarily because the teachings of the Buddha for 500 years were not written down and the people needed these, uh, what, mnemonic devices to remember how to stay on track. And so we know there are the four of this and the seven of this and the eight of this and the five of this and the hundred eight of this. And it's um, both uh, humorous and sometimes helpful <laughs> to, to realize this. And it's interesting that equanimity appears on some of the most important lists, and it typically appears right at the end of the list. So, for example, in the teaching of the paramis, which is the teaching of the core virtues or excellences that we would develop as uh, spiritual practitioners, uh, equanimity is the last of uh, ten on on one of the lists. you know, along with qualities like generosity and mindfulness and being ethical, and equanimity is at the end. There's another list called the seven factors of awakening, which point to the qualities of an awakened mind and heart and includes qualities. These lists are overlapping. The Buddha didn't, didn't worry about that, apparently. So that there are qualities like mindfulness and concentration, and tranquility, energy, and so forth. And equanimity is the last there as well. There's another one of the lists, which is, which is the list of the Brahma Vihara, or the divine abodes, uh, which I'm sure many of you have practiced and studied, which, is the, which are the qualities, we might say, of the awakened uh, heart, the opened heart. They're qualities of 
loving kindness or love and compassion and joy and equanimity. And equanimity is the last of those. So it's a very uh, powerful state. And what I'd like to do in the um, talk here is to clarify some of the qualities of equanimity and then talk about some of the ways that there can be distortions of equanimity because it, it can be a very confusing topic. We think of equanimity as being balanced but and we're asked to be equanimous in our practice. But what does that mean to be equanimous in the face of uh, ecological devastation, in the face of uh, maybe disease and impending death of some people you're close to? In the face of one's own suffering, what does equanimity mean? In the face of the massive suffering in the world, what does equanimity mean? We're asked to be equanimous. What does it mean to be equanimous in the face of racism? It can be very confusing. I think there are also potentially a lot of distortions. We can somehow think that we should be equanimous and this means that we're like um, stone faces or uh, unmoving or unemotional. And so equanimity, I believe, in its mature expression is not those, is not, uh, those ways. That it's very telling, I think, that equanimity is taught, I think, in its fullest way along with loving kindness and compassion and joy. And equanimity, I believe, has all of those qualities. It's also... Equanimity is also a force for action. It's not something that stays off on the mountaintop and observes and stays equanimous, but rather it's a capability that can be there right in the midst of action. And so for me, some of the people who've most inspired me with their equanimity are people who are right in the middle of difficulties or suffering, uh, both people I know personally who are not well known uh, and people that are have been in the public eye. Think of people like Martin Luther King. Embodies a tremendous equanimity, but is right there in the middle of things. Or think of the Dalai Lama, who has powerful equanimity. You know, my, uh, my sister once was a waitress um, in, um, at a restaurant in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, when she was in graduate school. And she, uh, the Dalai Lama came to her restaurant which is, which is pretty cool. And, <laughs> along with a bunch of monks, you know, and the Dalai Lama hears every report of people who have come from China. Many of them with tales of torture. Here, here, here's those reports daily. He deals with the events of the world. He's in touch with a lot of suffering. And yet, uh, at that restaurant at least, and I think this is what I've seen the Dalai Lama at other times, they just giggled the whole time. They just sat and had a great time and had this profound equanimity and humor that uh, went along with the openness to suffering. Went along with that and went along with a uh, very dedicated commitment to action as well. So I hope that's what I'm pointing to, that a mature equanimity is not cut off from emotion, is not cut off from action. And, and so what I'd like to explore is, what does that look like? How do we get there? And uh, how, how might this inspire us in our practice?
So I thought I'd first read a statement from the Buddha about equanimity. Here a practitioner dwells pervading one direction with the heart filled with equanimity. Likewise, the second, the third, and the fourth direction, so above, below, and around, the practitioner dwells pervading the entire world everywhere and equally with the heart filled with equanimity, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity, and free from distress. Powerful and attractive, you might say. Um, So what are the qualities of equanimity? I want to point to six qualities that I think are really the manifestations of equanimity. And they're the qualities of a balance, of a a kind of evenness towards experience, uh, a certain unshakability in our experience, understanding, faith, and joy. These to me are what make up equanimity. So it was um, the balance, evenness, unshakability, understanding, faith, and joy. I'll sign up for equanimity. <laughs> that sounds good. So I want to talk about those and then, and then talk about, how, and, and along the way I'll talk about how we can tend to have distortions of those qualities. So all the time I'll be looking for how to, what's true equanimity, how do we find forms of equanimity that may be uh, sort of masquerades of equanimity. Because I think we're very susceptible to those as Buddhist practitioners, to be honest about it. <laughs> so so uh, the word in the Pali language, upekka, actually means uh, literally balance. And so the sense of balance is, is at the heart of equanimity, and it really refers to the ability to be somewhat uh, centered with any experience, to be able to be present with any experience and not be, uh, not be knocked around so much, to be able to be present. And, and it's particularly challenging with experiences which are both uh, difficult or unpleasant and experiences which are uh, extremely pleasant or attractive. In a way, we push away and get knocked off center with the first kind and we grab hold and get knocked off center with the second kind. And so guess what? Our uh, ordinary meditation is the training in equanimity because we train in that balance. So I, I like to say that um, practicing meditation is not about necessarily about becoming peaceful and calm and just sort of relaxed and so forth. That's not really the intention. So if any of you need to leave at this point, <laughs> feel free. <laughs> but I hate to, hate to say this, but it's actually, that is more like a byproduct. And the real aim is to develop, what, wisdom and compassion, to be able to act wisely and compassionately in any, in any given moment, moment after moment. And yet we get attached to the peacefulness, don't we? the relaxation. It's helpful to remember that uh, a core of our practice is actually learning to hang out with things which tend to knock us off center. Being present with what's difficult. So if you have something difficult arise in your meditation, you don't have to curse it. You can say, another opportunity to train in equanimity. 
The same thing if you have something very positive happen. And that's very, really important to remember. I think even with 10, 20 years of practice, we still, oh, I just want to be peaceful. And that's, that's the sincere interest. But you can, I think you can see that the deeper uh, learning in meditation comes from being able to be present fully, as fully as possible, with what's happening and to learn how to be not so much knocked around with what's there. And I think that, in, indeed, um, that quality of equanimity really comes from the experience of knowing all the different possible contours of our experience and knowing again and again, okay, this is what, um, this is what sadness feels like. This is what uh, excitement feels like. This is what joy feels like. And studying those so much that increasingly when they come up, we can have balance towards them. We can say, oh, despair. I know you. I've been with you before. You don't scare me. Come here. Let's have a cup of tea (laughs) together. That kind of spirit is the spirit of equanimity. You know, there's, there's that beautiful poem some of you know by Rumi, which I, which I don't have here, but I, it occurred to me just now, which, which he says you should approach your experience as if it's a guest house. Do you know that poem? That you should welcome every new visitor, even if it doesn't seem like the greatest visitor to arrive. You'd much rather have another visitor, but you should approach each visitor as if you're operating a guest house because each visitor, Rumi says, has been sent by the beyond to help you in your learning. It's one way of looking at things. So that's that first quality of balance. The second quality is a quality of of evenness. It's related to balance, but it's an ability to increasingly not have a great, either really strong reaction, positively or negatively, towards experience, to kind of be able to be with the range of experience without reactivity, without reacting so much. Uh, for me, one of the greatest uh, expression, uh, or one of the most um, humorous, perhaps, uh, humorous and interesting expressions of um, this quality of evenness, that's the quality of equanimity, is found in uh, Japanese uh, haiku writing. and. Uh, I want to read a few of these because because I I love them very much and I think they express this quality of evenness and uh, actually I didn't exactly choose it this way but they all end up having to do with uh, fleas (laughs) and I think that perhaps in Japan this was in the uh, 17th, 18th century fleas uh, the presence of fleas was a powerful force for the development of equanimity (laughs) So, here's the first one by Basho, a great haiku writer. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. That's, that's the end of it. <laughs> Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. Now, what makes that equanimity? <laughs> What makes that an equanimity haiku? Uh, what makes anyone? What makes that an equanimity haiku? 
Flee's life, the horse pissing near my pillow. Yeah. Yeah. There's no commentary. He he doesn't say, you know, um, that darn horse. I had I didn't train it well enough. It's I should next time definitely remember to, you know, tie up the horse further away from my pillow. No, he didn't say that. He just describes it, right? Uh, I think he said there's always something. <laughs> <laughs> there's always something. Yeah, he's saying he's just saying this is what's happening. I can live with it. Something like that. But fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. So here are, here are two by Isa, great uh, haiku writer of around 1800, I believe, early part of the 19th century. It's also about, these are about fleas also. And these are brief, so listen carefully. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. <laughs> I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. Now another one. Now you fleas, <laughs> you shall go see Matsushima. Matsushima is a great, beautiful mountain. He says, now fleas, you shall go see Matsushima. Off we go. <laughs> <laughs> So that to, that to me expresses the quality of um, evenness towards experience, even with difficult parts of experience. And the, the third quality I wanted to talk about is a kind of unshakability, which again is very related, but it's, it's a sense that there are few things which can really shake us. And again, I think it comes from having looked very, very deeply into difficult experience after difficult experience, beautiful positive experience after beautiful positive experience. And we become, I think this is the direction of spiritual practice. We, we become in a way deeply um, aware of the wide range of human experience. We become in a way masters or mistresses or whatever language you want to use of the human experience. We come to know more and more all of these. And to me, it's one of the the glories of retreats that, uh, for me at least, a lot of my retreats have just been uh, invitations which I could not refuse to study a certain kind of experience that just presented itself with insistency or insistence uh, for a week, 10 days, a month. So one retreat, I... Uh, had tremendous amount of fear for 10 days, two weeks. Another retreat, I remember, um, was more connected with joy and understanding. Another retreat for me, I was angry for 10 days in a row, 18 hours a day. (laughs) Uh, I learned a lot about anger. Another retreat, I really focused on looking into being judgmental. And to me, everyone doesn't have that kind of experience, but sometimes we do. Sometimes life brings us this visitor, as it were, to the guest house that we get to look at. And again, I I want to 
um, emphasize that point, this to me is the real training ground for equanimity. It's seeing this wide range of experience and to the point where we can be somewhat unshakable. There's a great uh, teaching in the Buddhist tradition which points basically to the ways that we get shaken. And I love this teaching because it's a very simple one. It's, uh, it's called the teaching of the eight worldly winds or the eight worldly conditions. Some of you know this teaching. And it says that we basically get knocked around in at least eight main ways. We get knocked around by, by pleasure and pain, by gain and loss, by fame and disrepute, by praise and blame. And so if you're interested in equanimity practice, Study your relationship to these eight winds. Study your relationship to pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And we are incredibly susceptible to them. I know I am. I have been. You know, something, praise and blame for most of us, we can be just having the most wonderful day and a certain comment with a slightly or significantly judgmental tone or content can just totally knock us around, many of us, for quite a while. Is that true of anyone here? (laughs) Um, And it's just very much, I remember uh, when I was organizing a um, summer institute for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and we thought it was going pretty well. I was co-organizing with a few other people, and we had a, um, we did an evaluation about two or three days into it, and I, I remember we got the evaluations back and there were about 50 of them and about 45 of them thought everything was going really great. And about two or three of them were pretty negative. And I and most of the co-organizers, we we zoomed right into the negative ones. We said, those must surely be correct. (laughs) And there's a way that, does anyone anyone else do that? (laughs) There's a way in which these winds uh, are, so that that was interesting for me. When that happened, I said, oh, um, are you possibly losing perspective? You know, and so this is how we this is how we study equanimity. We study how we can really uh, be less uh, knocked off center, less shaken by these winds. And again, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. The fourth quality is um, understanding. And there's an important quality of wisdom in equanimity. It's an ability to see things from a broad perspective. Um, Another one of the etymological meanings for uh, equanimity is is to actually see see from some distance. It's part of the etymology. Another part of the etymology is to actually be right in the middle of things. So to me, that's a beautiful sense of equanimity, to be right in the middle of things and to see as if from a distance. It's a pretty good definition of equanimity. But there's a quality of understanding which comes, which, which is a lot the ability to see uh, causes and conditions, to see sort of why things are happening. When we understand something, think of maybe when you've had a difficult interaction with someone really close to you, and you really hear what the other person was going through. You really understand where that person has come from. For me, and I think probably for most of us, it can really shift 
maybe a sense of anger or polarization, when we really understand what was happening, when we really understand the conditions that were happening. I think this is very, very general point that when we really deeply understand another person, there tends to be compassion rather than antagonism. It may take a while. I think the same thing is true with looking at our government, our foreign policy, that there's that it's really important to, to look at the causes and conditions and to see that there might be very deep patterns that are inclining in a certain direction. Again, it doesn't mean not to act. It doesn't mean, oh, these are the causes and conditions. I won't do anything. But there's a quality of equanimity that can see very deeply into what's going on. One of my uh, heroes is the poet Gary Snyder. He talks about the importance of having a 4,000-year view of what's going on in a given moment, to really see from a distance, uh, to really be able to have a sense of those causes and conditions. Um, a fifth quality of equanimity is the quality of, of faith, which, is, which I think comes from experience. In Buddhist practice, faith is really something that comes not so much from believing in something, believing in a doctrine, but it really comes out of experience that we, we've seen deeply enough so that there's a kind of trust in the workability of experience and there's a kind of trust in our own nature. There's a trust in human nature. There's, there's a way that we can trust in the nature of our experience and trust in the nature of being. Um, I want to tell you, give you one very, for me, very powerful story, which comes from uh, Martin Luther King, which is about this quality of, of faith. Let me see. In, when, when Martin Luther King was first in uh, Montgomery in, in um, 1955, you know, in the middle of the Montgomery, boy, uh, bus, Montgomery uh, bus boycott, which probably most of you know that history, um, he had been getting a number of death threats. He had been working very hard. And one night, he had been getting death threats for some time. And he came home around midnight. Uh, and his wife and his newly born daughter were asleep. And he got a phone call. They didn't have answering machines and screening at that time. He just got a telephone call and he picked it up. And the uh, caller um, came saying, nigger, we are tired of you and your mess now. If you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. And he couldn't sleep after that. I think he had had death threats, but he was tired and frustrated. And he um, made himself a cup of coffee and he sat down at the uh, kitchen table. And this is what he later said about the experience. I was ready to give up. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. Not in the usual biographies, right? <laughs> it was around midnight. You can have some strange experiences at midnight. I sat there and thought about a beautiful little daughter. She was the darling of my life. I'd come in night after night and see this gentle little smile. And I sat at that table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife who was over there asleep. She could be taken from me, or I could be taken from her. And I got to the point where I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. 
Something said to me, you can't call on Daddy now. He's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. You can't even call on Mama now. You have to call on something in that person that your daddy used to tell you about, that power that can make a way out of no way. I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it, he said. I prayed a prayer and prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even into the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Never alone. He promised never to leave me alone. And so there was a kind of a, a deep experience. A few days later, his house actually was blown up. And no one was injured. He heard about the bombing before he even went home. And the people at the conference were amazed at his level of equanimity. That he was there and he was very, very clear, very determined, unshaken. And he attributed it to that experience. He attributed that quality of equanimity to that experience which developed, which for him developed very, very deep faith. And again, we can come to that faith in, in various ways. For him, that was how that occurred. And so there's this quality that emerges out of faith. I like to think of the quality of faith as an ability to more and more rest in being, to rest in the very nature of being. And some of you may have had this experience at certain moments of saying, I'm resting in being enough so that at this moment I could die. I think many of us have had that kind of experience which is a kind of a resting. It doesn't mean that's at all our intention. But there's a, a kind of faith and resting that can be um, very much a power for equanimity in action. The last quality I wanted to mention is the quality of, of joy. And it's interesting because in our usual sense of equanimity, we don't think about joy as a quality, we tend, the English word equanimity tends to make us think of something that's a little bit distant and removed, kind of like the ivory tower, the mountaintop. And this sense of joy is, uh, I think this is where the way that equanimity is taught together with the other three of the so-called divine abodes comes in, that equanimity is taught in conjunction with loving kindness or love, compassion and joy. And mature equanimity has all of those qualities. And if, it, if equanimity doesn't have those qualities, we should be a little bit suspicious in ourselves or in others. And so, again, can think of people that express this kind of joy. Again, think of the Dalai Lama with the joy, the giggling at that restaurant with my sister, or maybe in other settings where you've seen him. Or think of people who have equanimity and ask, uh, ask about their level, level of joy. To me, this is a very important way to look at equanimity because it points to the way that there can be distortions of equanimity. That if equanimity isn't in touch with the, with the uh, joy, the compassion, the loving kindness, it can be somewhat distorted. And there's this wonderful teaching, which is what I want to end with, 
which is the uh, teaching of the near enemies, that a lot of very wonderful qualities, as I'm sure as many of you know, in the teachings of the Buddha were described as having near enemies. They're qualities which look like the wonderful qualities, but they're actually distortion of the, of the um, wonderful qualities. And so in the teaching of the divine abodes, something can look like loving kindness, but actually be a kind of needy or grabby kind of love. It can kind of look like I'm really loving, but I'm not, there's something that's a little bit reactive or distorted. Similarly, something can look like compassion, but actually be pity. So pity is the near enemy of compassion. Pity is based to some extent on aversion and wanting to keep a distance, really being maybe afraid of the suffering of the other person. And likewise, the near enemy of joy is a kind of intoxication where we lose our center. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. It looks like equanimity, but it really isn't. And so I think we have to look carefully at our practice of equanimity to make sure that doesn't happen. For actually just to see when that does arise. And I'm, as uh, Hilda mentioned, I'm finishing a book uh, on, uh, it's tentatively titled The Engaged Spiritual Life a Buddhist approach to transforming ourselves and the world. And part, it's wonderful to write a book. It's kind of nerve-wracking sometimes, but with deadlines and so forth. But we, I've had some training in equanimity. Uh, and, but one of the things that I really enjoyed is that I got to look more deeply at equanimity. And whereas in the Buddhist tradition, there's one near enemy of equanimity, which is indifference, I found 11. <laughs> I found 11, and I, I thought I'd just mention these, and, and you can see if they resonate with you. I found that some kind of privileged distance can look like equanimity. Some kind of sense of privilege and distance can look like equanimity, but it's not really. It's a distortion. Denial can look like equanimity. You know, we can be separate from something, and it can look like equanimity, but it's not really. Complacency can look like equanimity. Resignation can look like equanimity. Acquiescence can look like equanimity. Numbness can look like equanimity. Intellectual aloofness can look like equanimity. You know, I know what's happening. <laughs> I'm, nothing ruffles me because I don't come close to anything. <laughs> uh, Rationalization or cynicism can look like equanimity. Dogmatism can look like equanimity, as when we have this ironclad way of seeing things that doesn't let the slightest bit of information that would uh, go against my view come in. Dogmatism can look like equanimity. Fear of strong emotions can look like equanimity. And so the, the mature equanimity has the qualities of connection, I think of action and responsibility, of joy. And I thought I'd just end by uh, reading another haiku, which I think is a very powerful expression of the way that equanimity has to balance with compassion. And this is again from Isa. And this is, this is uh, his haiku refers to the Diamond Sutra, 
which talks about impermanence and how everything's changing and the world is here one our world is given experience is here one moment and then gone another it talks about life being like a, a dewdrop that's there in the morning and by the time the sun comes out it's over very clear sense of impermanence so that could be a position from equanimity so isa is going to say that needs to be somewhat balanced. And here's, here's Isa's very, very short haiku. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. And Gary Snyder, in his gloss on the haiku, says, that and yet is our practice. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet, that and yet is our practice. So thank you very much. So we have some time for any discussion. And if uh, you would let us know you're going to be the next speaker, then I'll get the microphone to you so the people with hearing-assisted devices can hear you. said fear and um, strong emotion could look like equanimity. Yeah. Can you expand on that and like maybe yeah. Did everyone hear the question? Thanks. The question is um, can I explain my 11th near enemy <laughs> of equanimity which is uh, said fear of strong emotions. Well I think it's related to some of the others but we can sort of insulate ourselves and by the way um, Maybe the reason why I have so many near enemies is that I reflected a lot on my own experience. So these are not, these are ones that I know from the inside, and maybe many of you do. So they're not just sort of, you know, I didn't go roaming around the Bay Area looking for <laughs> distortions of equanimity. So, um, so fear of strong emotions, and maybe others can, can reflect on this, that um, I think it's particularly a danger for people doing Buddhist practice because there's, there's a way in which we taste a kind of peace and uh, clarity that's wonderful. And at times we can use the meditation as a way of avoiding strong experiences. And it, it, so we may, we may have the fear of strong emotions because we're clinging to some kind of peace. And sometimes that can be wise. Sometimes it's wise to avoid strong emotions when we are going through a place in our life where it's just we need some stability and so forth. But in the long term, it's important to open up. And so at times we can uh, usually be fearful because we're clinging to something that we think will be threatened by the strong emotions, whether it's clarity or peace or something like that. So, thank you. Unfortunately, I missed some of what you said earlier, but I wonder if you could comment on uh, the role of humor in contrast, perhaps, to joy. Yeah, of, yeah. of course, humor that's at someone else's expense is 
Yeah. It's clearly a problem, but... Yeah. Please. Please. The, the question was about the role of humor. It's a big role of humor in equanimity. I was going to talk about it, but I didn't have... I, I look, was trying to finish and give some time. So um, I'll give an example from my own experience. There's a huge role of humor in equanimity, but like you're saying, it's important that it not be at someone else's expense. So um, part of my own training, some of you know, I've... Um, he wasn't a plant. <laughs> uh, so I've had training at the Clown School of San Francisco, uh, you know, um, and I have a I have a clown persona named um, Garbanzo Bean. And what's very, uh, in fact, I'm next week at Spirit Rock. I'm going to do a day long called the Dharma and the Clown. Every if you want to go, you get a free nose. Um, and. Um, one of the things about clown training that's very helpful is that it really, uh, from doing different skits and exercises in clown training, it's very, very helpful when things are, particularly when they're going poorly, to imagine it as something in a clown skit. And so we have a phrase in clown training, we say, this is a clown moment, which means basically that um, seen as part of a clown skit, this horribly frustrating, difficult moment can be seen more spaciously and humorously. So one example that I had just very recently was um, um, my, the house that I live in, the person who owned it, well, I think the person who remodeled the kitchen like 15 years ago, put in these um, German fluorescent lights in the bathroom that are very expensive. And they're very hard to get out and very hard to put back in. And so I finally tracked down a store that had them, got three lights, and proceeded to try to put them in. The first one that I put in, I put it in, I turned on the light, and it shorted immediately. Um, the second one I put in didn't go in very well. I had to push it to get in, and it exploded in my hand. And then the third one, um, the same thing happened. And they were expensive. They were like, you know, there was... And there it was, I just put out all this effort to um, have good lights in my bathroom. And, and, they all, and, and I was feeling at first frustrated and I just could notice a moment of blaming myself. And then very quickly it said, this is definitely a clown moment. <laughs> can you imagine, so you can imagine a skit where you're the hero and you, your role is to try to put lights on in the bathroom and you fail miserably. And to me, I do that quite often and it totally shifts the energy. So that's one way of using humor. There are a lot of other ways, but uh, yes, uh, humor is very connected with equanimity. Very, very important. So that helped me. That totally shifted it. One, one moment of saying, this is a clown moment and all the other thoughts, they just vanished because it was helping to see in that uh, large perspective. <laughs> <laughs> so, so try it. <laughs> don't don't buy those fluorescent German bulbs <laughs> if you're remodeling. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 11:45. So I could keep talking and talking about equanimity because I I fell in love with equanimity, as you probably gather. And uh, but we should finish now. Should we just? I'll bring bring the morning to a close. Anyone who wants to come up and talk, it's fine. And maybe just to say two things. I did bring a few things. Um, 
I brought a, if anyone wants to be on an email list, just a few times a year I'll send a schedule of my teaching. If you'd like to do that, should I just, where would be, would it be good to leave it back there? Yeah. Would it be good for me to get that to you? Okay. And the other thing I have is I have some schedules for my teaching schedule, which is uh, I'll be back here on September 10th. I'll do a day long on uh, basic mindfulness practice on September 10th. If anyone wants to reconnect, and um, and most of the teaching is at Spirit Rock. And so I'll, I'll just, if any, I'll try to leave these at the back. Also, you can pick, they're not enough for everyone, but they're, um, they're about 30 of them there. So, anyway, so I wish you, wish you well in your practice of equanimity. So let's just sit quietly for about a minute to close. So I love to finish sittings and periods of practice with coming back to what was helpful. So let, if there was something that was helpful from the morning, an insight, an intention, not necessarily even connected with equanimity. It might have been something that came to you in your sitting. If there was something that was helpful or important, let that be present to you right now. And if there's an intention which comes out of the morning, maybe related to developing more equanimity, let that also be present. So we close by Remembering that our practice is very much for our own growing freedom, but it's also for the benefit of others. And I want to end with a very traditional Buddhist ending, which is to dedicate the merit, to say, may the fruits of our morning together be offered very freely for the awakening, the liberation, of all beings.